August 7, 1945. An entire day had passed since 70,000 structures in Hiroshima were leveled by the first atomic bomb, but most Japanese leaders seemed largely unfazed. The Japanese army released an underwhelming communique stating that Hiroshima was attacked by a small number of B-29s causing considerable damage and that a new type of bomb had been used. Details, the communique said, were now under investigation. The Japanese government took no other action except to send a fact-finding team to Hiroshima and to delay any further response to the previously ignored Allied surrender terms issued at Potsdam until the team returned. It was clear that the Americans were following through on their vow to rain prompt and utter destruction on Japan if she failed to surrender. But the Empire had weathered devastating B-29 raids before, including the apocalyptic firebombing of Tokyo in March that destroyed 16 square miles and killed between 80,000 and 130,000 people. How was this attack on Hiroshima different? The Supreme War Council could obtain very little reporting except for news that a single bomb had essentially wiped the city from the earth. Sixteen hours after the little boy blast, Truman released a statement from the White House that removed all doubt about what had happened. It is an atomic bomb, Truman said. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. He reminded the world that the terms offered from Potsdam were meant to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction. If Japan did not now accept those terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. In view of the Americans' new weapon, Foreign Minister Togo urged Emperor Hirohito to accept the terms of the Potsdam Declaration. The Emperor agreed. The tragedy of Hiroshima must not be repeated, he said. Togo was to tell the Prime Minister, Suzuki, that he must find a way to terminate the war without delay. Suzuki called an emergency meeting of the Supreme War Council, which included the top leaders of Japan's military, but was told that the council had more pressing business to attend to. The army, long opposed to surrender, then busied itself with suppressing the news seeping in from Western sources that the Allies had, with Potsdam, offered the opportunity to surrender. Through a combination of news censorship and government propaganda, many Japanese citizens believed that although they were starving and living in constant fear of the ominous shadow of B-29s, their nation was still on the verge of victory. But the War Council had found that it could not suppress America's attempts to communicate with the Japanese people through a campaign of direct mail. Newspapers and leaflets written in the Japanese language and printed on Saipan were loaded into bomb casings designed to open at 4,000 feet and release a blizzard of information. Since at least July 27th, the day after Potsdam, Super Fortress crews had been papering the countryside, informing the people of the true state of the war 
and urging them to evacuate cities targeted for air raids. On August 1st, B-29s dropped one million leaflets over 35 cities, warning civilians to evacuate areas scheduled for bombing within the next few days. The names of targeted cities appeared in Japanese writing under a picture of five airborne B-29s releasing bombs. Before the war's climax, U.S. planes would drop 63 million leaflets over the country. But even after Hiroshima, the Japanese military portrayed them all as propaganda and warned its citizens that anyone caught in possession of these enemy lies was subject to arrest. On August 7th, some Indy survivors landed at Base Hospital No. 18 on Guam. There, news of the atomic strike and its connection to Tinian Island zipped through the wards like a firecracker string. Finally, the mystery was solved. One by one, the survivors understood the sudden departure from Hunter's Point, the secrecy, the strange drills, and the presence of the two Army officers who had sailed with them. At Guam, McVeigh submitted to another press interview, this one with three reporters, Leo Litz of the Indianapolis News, George McWilliams of the International News Service, and Paul Hughes of the Louisville Courier-Journal sat with the captain on a portico overlooking the Pacific. McVeigh sat in a wheelchair, a notebook in his hand. Already he had been ordered to file a report on the sinking and had been writing down events as he remembered them. My guess is that the Indianapolis was hit in an underwater torpedo attack, McVeigh told the reporters. He went on to explain how, as soon as he got to the bridge, he tried to get word down to other parts of the ship. But all the lights were out, and I found that the explosion had paralyzed the communication system. I sent word to the radio room to see that the calls went out for help, and later, myself, went to see about messages. At first, McVeigh said, he was not sure the ship would sink. But as the ship began to list sharply, it became clear that she suffered from serious gaping damage. Litz, McWilliams, and Hughes also interviewed Dr. Haynes at Guam. He sat with them, his hands bound in bandages. I'm still in a daze, Haynes said relating the horrors of four days drifting at sea. The reporters asked the doctor whether he had any criticism of McVeigh's actions. No, he said. It was the most terrible thing that could be imagined, and everywhere there was confusion. Nothing worked. Fire and blast had severed all wires, and it was impossible to make any kind of progress from one place on the ship to another. Paul Hughes went on to talk with several more survivors, all of whom expressed their unqualified support for the captain. Admiral Spruance arrived at the hospital bearing Purple Hearts, and McVeigh accompanied the admiral as he bestowed medals on the wounded. Those who were able stood to receive their awards. Others received theirs lying in bed. Conflicting emotions tore through the men. Seaman Don McCall didn't think he deserved the honor. Joseph Caselica a big, tall fellow from Connecticut, seethed with resentment. I'm proud of you, Spruance told Caselica, as he affixed the purple heart to his chest. Caselica wasn't proud at all, not of what the Navy had done to him, 
and not of what the Navy had done to his shipmates, some living but most dead. First they ignore us for four days, he thought. Now they want to pin medals on us. Kiselika, a second-class machinist's mate, didn't dare say anything to the Admiral, but after that day he never wore his purple heart again. When Spruance and McVeigh got to the quartermaster, Bob Gauss, the captain said, If you decide to stay in the Navy, I'll see to it that you make chief. Thank you, sir, but no thanks, Gauss said. After what he'd just been through, he was going to get out of the Navy double quick and go home to Florida. Letters from home caught up with the men, Cletus Lebo, who had felt that strange dread about returning to Indy at Mare Island, received one from his mother. I had a dream, Minervia wrote. I heard you call me, and I got up from bed and went out on the porch to get you. Papa came out and got me and put me back to bed. It was midnight. At twelve-fifteen, I heard you call me again, and I got up and went out again to find you. After Lebo read the letter, he looked at the date. His mother had written it on July 29th the day before the ship sank. As the survivors' health improved, they asked to be allowed to let their families know they were still alive. The Navy let them, after a fashion. They were given a sheet of Red Cross stationery and a strict set of rules. They were not allowed to mention their whereabouts, the fact that Indianapolis had sunk, their nurses or doctors, or refer in any way to the ordeal they'd just survived. And so machinist's mate George Horvath wrote lies to his wife. I'm still doing all right and getting along, or maybe I should say I'm getting settled to the routine life at sea. Three meals a day and a couple of watches to stand. Sounds thrilling, don't it? I love you, George. At least, Horvath thought, Alice May and their two boys would know he was okay. Also back at Guam, Malcolm Johnson and the other reporters drafted their articles. At Peleliu, Johnson's first look at the survivors had scored his memory like a diamond cutting glass. Some were still bleeding, skin boiled and aflame, faces blistered over, some missing chunks of flesh, others unable even to speak. In the perverse gallows ethos of journalism, the sinking of Indianapolis was a great story, full of drama, tragedy, and heroism, with particulars almost too awful to believe. But it was also an important story that revealed flaws in the Navy's system of tracking its ships. Was it possible, Johnson wondered, that as the last climactic fight loomed to the north, complacency had set in among senior officers in the rear? Was the Navy guilty of negligence on a catastrophic scale? Through official channels, Guam Public Affairs personnel asked the Navy Department whether the journalists' stories about the sinking could be released from Guam. The reply came back, no. They would have to first be sent to Washington. Johnson prepared his story accordingly. Soon, his piece along with those of the rest of the Guam press corps, was en route to D.C. by air. 2. August 9, 1945 On the morning of August 9, 
Japan's Supreme War Council awoke to find that the number of their enemies had increased by one. They were now at war with the Soviets, too. The Soviets had informed Japan in April that they would not be renewing the neutrality pact the two nations had signed in 1941. The pact was not set to expire until 1946, but after Japan's mokusatsu of the Big Three Powers Potsdam Declaration, the Soviets decided to accelerate their diplomatic break and announced that as of August 9th, the Soviet Union will consider herself in a state of war against Japan. Within hours of this declaration, awful wheels were set in motion. Boxcar, a B-29 carrying a 21-kiloton plutonium weapon, dubbed Fat Man, rolled down the runway at Tinian. The decision to use the second bomb, made two days before at Guam, was not aimed at annihilating the enemy. It was psychological warfare, calculated to suggest that America had an endless supply of these apocalyptic weapons and would use them to systematically incinerate Japan unless she surrendered. It was follow-through on President Truman's warning in his August 6th declaration after Hiroshima. We are now prepared to obliterate more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have above ground in any city. At 10.58 a.m., Boxcar released Fat Man over Nagasaki, and seconds later, the light of a thousand suns flared in the cockpit. Between 40,000 and 75,000 Japanese people on the ground perished. For the survivors of Indianapolis, the deployment of history's second atomic bomb delayed an event that would reverberate for decades into the future. Admiral Chester Nimitz had ordered a court of inquiry into the circumstances surrounding Indy's sinking. The Admiral ordered the court convened on August 9th, but the Nagasaki strike and the climactic combination of strategy and diplomacy that heralded the end of the war pushed that date back to August 13th. Loosely speaking, a naval court of inquiry is a fact-finding body, much like a grand jury. In this case, the aim was to find out what happened to Indianapolis, why, and who was to blame. Via naval message, Nimitz informed Vice Admiral Charles A. Lockwood, commander of the Pacific Submarine Force, of his position as president of the court. Nimitz also appointed to the court Vice Admiral George Murray, commander of the Marianas Islands. The proceedings were to take place in Murray's offices at Guam. It could be argued that Murray, as the divert authority east of the chop line, had an inherent conflict of interest. But rescue efforts had wrapped up only four days earlier, and the circumstances of the sinking were still murky. No one was yet talking about the implications of the hunter-killer operation conducted by USS Harris. No one was talking about the positively identified submarine she had chased for a dozen hours dead ahead of Indianapolis. No one was talking about any responsibility that might lie with Murray for not having diverted Indianapolis, or even alerted McVeigh to the storm of message traffic that warned of a protracted anti-submarine chase in his path. Or if anyone was talking, it was below official radar. After the sinking, 
Hashimoto had disappeared to the north, his role in events as yet unknown. But once the epic disaster of Indianapolis came to light, officers on both sides of the Philippine Sea must have wondered whether the enemy submarine chased and lost by Harris and Green was responsible. Meanwhile, at Murray's headquarters, a series of grim lists took shape. One was a roll of missing Indianapolis personnel. Page one alone bore the names of Paul Candelino, the officer Lieutenant Orr sent to Radio One with a distress message, Father Conway, Commander Flynn, Lieutenant Freeze, Commanders Lipsky and Janney, Casey Moore, and the Marine Commander, Captain Park. Also on page one was Orr himself, who had calmly manned a bullhorn and policed abandoned ship, though he had more reason than most men to leap quickly from the second vessel that had sunk from underneath him in less than a year. This list, typed in thick black pica, stretched on for eighteen single-spaced pages. Husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, uncles, all swallowed by the deep. Other overlapping lists arrived from rescue ships, all of which had ended their search for bodies on the day of the Nagasaki strike. USS French reported bodies found and assigned each a number. Body number 20. No identification tags, rings, watch, or other means of identification. Body unclothed, except for a pair of socks, unstenciled. Body 5 feet 11 inches, black hair, no distinguishing scars or marks. Body very badly mutilated by sharks and decomposed. Body number 22. No identification tags, rings, or watch. Had identification bracelet, but it was lost overboard while removing it from the arm of the body. There were many such men and boys, unidentified and unidentifiable. Recovery vessels consistently reported the disfiguring impact of ravaging sharks. Other names on French's list of the dead were, in their way, poignant, their personal effects revealing bits and pieces of young lives cut short. Carl Emerson Myers, for example, had in his pocket a wallet containing nine photos, his Navy ID, a news clipping, an address book, and another treasure, his certificate of domain of Neptunus Rex, the mark of a trusty shellback, a sailor who has made passage across the equator. Myers, though, had made his final passage, and French recorded him as body number 27. All such lists would make their way to the office of Admiral Louis Denfeld, Chief of Naval Personnel, whose staff would cross-reference them and match the names of the missing with those confirmed dead. At the Guam Hospital, the survivors had two nurses, one they loved and one they hated. The latter was a steel-jawed Valkyrie who stalked the wards with the mien of a warden. The men called her Old Blood and Guts. The other nurse was Eva Jane Bolance. Each day, Eva Jane glided down the rows of beds, administering mercy. She tended the men's wounds with alcohol and soothed their chafed skin with powder. Eva Jane gave them back rubs and foot rubs, making sure they were cared for throughout the night. Before they left the hospital, several of the men, 
proposed marriage. Lyle Umenhofer was busy with other things, in particular, counting his money and his blessings. The day the ship sank, he had withdrawn $250 from his ship account. Through all the days in the water, the money survived in his wallet intact. At Peleliu, Umenhofer had laid it out bill by bill on his hospital bed to dry. Now it occurred to him that all payroll and any cash aboard, along with all the accounting records, had gone down with the ship. A lot of the fellows in the hospital had literally nothing but the clothes on their backs. One survivor, Seaman First Class Big Ed Brown of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, received a surprise visit from his brother, Jim. Each brother learned for the first time that the other was involved in delivering the killing blow to Japan. While Ed had helped transport components of little boy to Tinian aboard Indy, his brother, a 24-year-old Army sergeant, was attached to the 509th, the secret B-29 squadron that dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Ed had known Jim was a Tinian, but with only three hours in port, Ed had no time to look him up. Now the brothers were astonished to learn they'd both played a role in ending the war. Ed Brown wasn't the only survivor with a visitor from Tinian. Lying in his hospital bed, Ensign John Woolston was surprised when Major Robert Furman appeared at his side. As soon as he could break free, Furman had hopped a plane from Tinian to Guam. His mission had been a success but the crew of Indianapolis paid a catastrophic price. Had they not been tapped to transport his canisters, he knew the whole crew might be in San Diego for refresher training right now, sitting out the balance of the war on some sun-swept beach. Furman wanted to at least visit the survivors, shake their hands, and thank them for what they'd done for their country. He'd already visited with Lewis Haynes, who confided the terrible news that only one of the Irish officers Furman had grown fond of had survived. Furman thought it a queer trick of fate that de Graves' most egregious humiliation, being put off the ship, probably saved his life. Now, Furman stood beside Woolston and thanked him for his role in the mission. Though wildly junior to the major, Woolston knew he'd never have this chance again. He told Furman about his epiphany at Tinian, about smothering his impulse to ask him about the mystery canisters. The young ensign's lips curved into a smile. What would you have done, sir, if I had asked you about the uranium? Furman froze and looked down at Woolston, his face a cipher. Then he turned his back and left. Robert Furman had been a locked vault since 1943. He would not let his concern for the survivors cross the line into speculating about a security breach that never happened. On the night of August 9th, with Nagasaki still burning, the Big Six of the Japanese Supreme War Council convened for their third meeting of the day. A bright line still divided those who would accept peace and those who favored fighting on. Worse, the council was deadlocked, with three members dug in firmly on each side. Ending the war would require, if not unanimity, at least consensus on the council. 
more hawks would have to agree with the doves. Prime Minister Suzuki and Foreign Minister Togo knew what had to be done. They would have to break historical precedent and involve the emperor. Members of this council had recently reigned unopposed over much of the Pacific. This night, they met deep under the imperial palace in a bomb shelter that was sweltering and claustrophobic. At ten minutes to midnight, the emperor appeared, ready to determine the fate of Japan. Crammed tightly into the hot little space, Hirohito's counselors mopped sweat from their brows with white handkerchiefs and kept their eyes averted respectfully away from his majesty. After reading the Potsdam Declaration aloud, Suzuki summarized the two prior meetings that had also resulted in deadlock. He then apologized to the emperor for requesting his presence. But with the council in stalemate, and even Suzuki's cabinet divided three ways on surrender, it was necessary, the prime minister said. Breaking with centuries of protocol, Suzuki asked the emperor to weigh in. Hirohito absorbed all this quietly. Then, after a long, painful stillness, the council listened in devastated silence as their sovereign spoke the unthinkable. Continuing the war can only result in the annihilation of the Japanese people and a prolongation of the suffering of all humanity, the monarch said, his voice soft and controlled. It seems obvious that the nation is no longer able to wage war, and its ability to defend its own shores is doubtful. That is unbearable for me. The emperor had long pressed Suzuki to find a way to end the war, but the war council members had remained intractably opposed to anything resembling surrender. Now, nearly two million people, military and civilian, were dead, and another eight million wounded or homeless. And in addition to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, more than 40 of his nation's 206 municipalities had been completely destroyed. Tokyo and 37 other cities had lost more than 30% of their developed areas. Meanwhile, every major city in the country had suffered damage, save the Kyoto Historic Temple area, which American leaders had avoided out of respect. The emperor now declared it enough. The time has come to bear the unbearable, he said. I give my sanction to the proposal to accept the Allied proclamation on the basis outlined by the foreign minister. The emperor then exited the room without another word. The war council sat mute and shell-shocked. How could great Japan admit defeat, they wondered. Would not people all over the land commit seppuku, die with honor rather than surrender in shame? Though Hirohito had voiced his opinion, his counselors were still charged with making a final decision. Many military leaders suspected that the emperor was under the spell of traitors, and some even whispered of a coup. When they heard the emperor's shameful words this night, how long would it be until those leaders rose up and overthrew him? 3. August 13, 1945 at 10 a.m. on August 13th, Admiral Charles Lockwood convened the Nimitz-ordered Court of Inquiry. 
Though eleven days had passed since the survivors were spotted, the public had not been told that Indianapolis was lost. Even the next of kin of those lost at sea remained in the dark, although telegrams would go out later that day. In addition to Admirals Lockwood and Murray, the court was composed of Rear Admiral Francis Whiting and Captain William E. Hilbert, a Navy judge advocate or lawyer. There would be 43 witnesses called before the court. In addition, throughout the proceedings, Lockwood and the court would name a number of interested parties, men not quite accused of anything, but rather put on notice. Right away, Captain Charles McVeigh asked the court for permission to make himself an interested party. Even while skippering his little fleet of rafts with its castaway crew, he had known what was coming. At Peleliu, after rescue, he sat on the porch of an old friend's Quonset hut, staring out at the sea, grieving for his lost men, and knowing that the Navy would try to hang the sinking around his neck. As an interested party, McVeigh would have the right to counsel, the right to be present for all testimony, and the right to introduce material into the record in the same manner as a defendant. He could even cross-examine witnesses. By naming himself an interested party, McVeigh secured himself a front-row seat at what otherwise would have been a closed-door proceeding. In addition to his new status, McVeigh was also the first witness. The court asked him 67 questions, eliciting a recitation of events as he remembered them. The court also asked if the ship had been on a zigzag course, to which McVeigh replied, No, sir. McVeigh noted that the night had been dark and visibility poor, and that no intelligence was given to him about any submarine threat. McVeigh's routing orders permitted him to cease zigzagging and steer a straight course under such conditions. But under questioning, he had to admit that his standing orders for the OOD did not include a directive to start zigzagging if conditions improved. Other than concerning the actual rescue of yourself and the party you were with, said Hilbert, the judge advocate, have you any observations to make with regard to the rescue operations? Nothing, except that I wish to call attention to the interval of time, which elapsed from the time the ship was due in Leyte, to the apparent commencement of rescue operations, McVeigh said. The next witness was Commander John Corey, an aerologist who was assistant officer in charge of Fleet Weather Central. Corey proceeded to paint a picture of weather on the night of the sinking that was postcard perfect. The weather was excellent, Corey said, citing all reports available. He then delivered a wordy technical soliloquy on sealing and predicted visibility. McVeigh stepped in instantly to cross-examine him, asking what he meant by predicted visibility, then forcing Corey to admit he was referring to conditions forecast and not actually observed. Your information related to the night of July 29th was not a factual description of what the weather was in the 25-mile area, was it? McVeigh said. No, Corey admitted. It was not a factual statement. The next witness called was Lieutenant Joseph Waldron, the routing officer at Guam. The court asked him about Route Petty and Indianapolis's routing instructions, 
a total of 30 questions. After Waldron was dismissed and the next witness entered, so did the whiff of corruption. Captain Oliver Naquin was the surface operations officer at Guam when Indy sailed. His superior was Vice Admiral Murray, who now sat on the court. Naquin took his seat in the witness chair. In your capacity as surface operations officer, said Hilbert, if there has come to your attention data on the presence of mines and submarines in the general area between Guam and Leyte, please produce such data for the period 1 July to 9 August. I have it here in a chart with tabulated data appended, Naquin said. On the chart, Naquin indicated blue triangles denoting reported mines and red crosses that represented submarine contacts. He had drawn in Route Petty and the approximate location where Indianapolis sank. Naquin's chart was presented to McVeigh and to the court and entered into evidence. Can you tell us how many sightings were made along the Petty line during the period covered? A member of the court asked. My records indicate we had reports on one submarine contact, possibly sonar, by the Madison on July 12th, Naquin said. This was an outright lie. Like his counterpart, Captain Alfred Granham on Leyte, Naquin had been addressed on all message traffic regarding USS Harris and her protracted chase of an enemy submarine along Indy's route on July 28th and 29th. Naquin was also in possession of Smedberg's ultra-intelligence, including the information on the Taman Group, and specifically that I-58 was known to be operating west of the Marianas. The court then asked Naquin, Would you judge that the estimate of submarine dangers along the route from Guam to Leyte at the time of the sailing of Indianapolis was considered to be heavy or light, particularly precarious or nominal? I would consider the calculated risk as practically negligible, Naquin said. On Monday, August 13th, in Mayfield, Kentucky, Jane Henry, the Indianapolis dentist's wife, was ready to turn in for the night when the telephone rang. Little Earl was already tucked in for the night, and Jane hurried to the upstairs extension to stop the ringing. Jane and the baby were staying with her parents, George and Bessie Covington, at their home on 8th Street until Earl Sr. came home. In a recent letter, he'd wondered at length about what they'd do after the war was over, where they would live where he would work. In the last letter Jane received, he'd gushed about the photos she'd sent of little Earl and then said he felt America seemed to be closing in on victory. Wouldn't it be wonderful, he wrote, if the war was over by the time Indianapolis returned to the States. Jane snatched up the phone before it woke the baby and heard her father's voice already on the line. He had answered downstairs just before she had. The caller was Uncle Buck, Dr. Claude Buckner, a relative by marriage, who had practiced dentistry with Earl before he left Knoxville to go on active duty. George, we are so sorry to hear the news, Uncle Buck was saying. What news? Jane heard her father say. Buck paused, and to Jane he seemed unsure whether to continue. 
Horace and Arletta just got a telegram today from the Navy, Buck said, referring to Earl's parents. It says Earl's missing in action. Jane's insides went cold, and her legs seemed to turn to water. She raised a hand to brace herself against the wall. We haven't received any telegram like that, said George, who happened to be the Mayfield postmaster. He expected they would have received something of such high importance, but supposed that it might have reached Knoxville first, before their small town. Jane couldn't believe what she was hearing. Hot tears of bewilderment and grief spilled down her face. Quietly, she hung up the phone and fled to find her mother. The next morning, George Covington walked the short distance to the Mayfield Post Office, assisted by a cane. He had called two of Jane's friends, and they were at the house already, to be with her in case the news was as bad as Buck had said. At the post office, George found what he hoped he would not a telegram from Western Union. He read it and hobbled back to 8th Street, the thin slip of paper riding in his breast pocket like a stone. Back at home, Jane read the telegram through a curtain of tears. I deeply regret to inform you that your husband, Earl Odell Henry, Lieutenant Commander USNR, is missing in action 30 July 1945 in the service of his country. Your great anxiety is appreciated, and you will be furnished with details when received. To prevent possible aid to our enemies, please do not divulge the name of his ship or station unless the general circumstances are made public in news stories. At first, Jane couldn't catch her breath. Pain spread across her chest and down into her gut. The shock felt like electricity coursing through her bones. Her friends leaned in to console her, but in truth, there was no consolation, only a splinter of hope. She didn't know what had happened to Indianapolis, but she did know Earl was a good swimmer. If the ship had sunk, maybe he had been able to make it to an island somewhere. She clung to this thought as the morning passed. Then outside, a church bell in town began to ring. It did not stop, but kept on its insistent peal floating down 8th Street in joyous song. Another bell joined, and another, until it seemed every church tower in Mayfield had joined in some kind of rapturous chorus. Soon, car horns joined in, followed by full-throated shouts, men, women, and the high, sweet voices of children. George opened the door to see people spilling out of their homes, laughing and crying and embracing. Even inside the house, Jane could hear their words. Japan surrendered. The war is over. She looked down at the wrinkled telegram in her hand and wept. 878 other families, enough people to populate a couple of small towns, received a version of the message sent to Jane Henry. Many including Cletus Lebo's mother, Minervia, received a telegram stating that Indianapolis had gone down with 100% casualties. Unaware that casualties can refer to injury as well as fatality, Minervia and many other mothers thought their living sons were dead. Mary O'Donnell 
had anxiously waited for her husband, water-tender third-class Jimmy O'Donnell, to return to Indianapolis, the cruiser's namesake city. When Indy abruptly departed for the forward areas back in July, Mary had stood on the Golden Gate Bridge and watched her carry Jimmy away. From that moment on, a premonition haunted her. A telegram with Jimmy's name on it would be coming for her. Not one to panic, she pushed the feeling aside. And then the wire came. She'd called several friends and wives she'd met at Mare Island and quickly discovered that the entire crew was missing in action. Lieutenant Commander John Emery, father of Bill Emery, the young quartermaster striker, who joined Indianapolis at Mare Island, received the same telegram as the Henrys. His son was missing in action, and he was to await further details. Five years earlier, John Emery and his wife had lost their five-year-old son, Billy's brother, to spinal meningitis. Now, Emery did not intend to sit still for uncertain news about the death of a second child. Unlike most Indianapolis families, he had contacts, resources, connections. Immediately, he sat down and wrote a letter to his friend Herb Armitage, who was serving in the Pacific Theater. Could Armitage find Emery some answers about Bill? At Guam, a friend of Armitage's tracked down quartermaster Vincent Allard, who had been Bill's supervisor. The news wasn't good. Allard had last seen Bill on the bridge wearing a life jacket. No one had seen him since. When this word reached John Emery, guilt compounded his grief. Believing that Indianapolis would likely sit out the rest of the war, he had pulled strings to get his son assigned to her. Now he asked himself, what had he done? As Indianapolis families received news that their loved ones were missing, 24 men gathered again in the small, hot bunker with Emperor Hirohito to receive his final pronouncement on the war. The day after the War Council's August 9th meeting, Japan had agreed to accept the Potsdam Declaration, but with a caveat. The emperor was to remain sovereign. In response, Truman ordered continued bombing runs over military targets. For days, Hirohito's advisors were again deadlocked, this time on new terms for surrender. Though Japan's government rested on the cooperation of monarchy, military, and civil institutions, the emperor's word carried the force of deity, and on August 14th, he declared 15 years of war enough. If we continue the war, Japan will be altogether destroyed, Hirohito told his war council, assembled again in the cramped palace bunker. Although some of you are of the opinion that we cannot completely trust the Allies, I believe that an immediate and peaceful end to the war is preferable to seeing Japan annihilated. Hirohito was not worried for himself, he said, but rather for the many thousands of his countrymen who had died fighting, or who were wounded, homeless, and impoverished, with few resources to rebuild. He promised to do everything he could to help them, and with that, asked his men to write a radio script announcing Japan's surrender. He would deliver it in his own voice in a national broadcast. 
Concluding his remarks, Hirohito stood and exited the bunker. When he was gone, his counselors burst into uncontrollable sobs. Some collapsed to the ground, kneeling in grief, fearing for the fate of their emperor, whom they regarded as a god. But on that day, Hirohito appeared as an ordinary man, broken down by the long years of war. The emperor himself understood the power his radio broadcast would hold. Apart from his cloistered government, few had ever heard his voice, the voice of the crane. At Guam, the court of inquiry ground on. Of the 306 Indianapolis survivors, only 20 testified. Besides McVeigh, there were four other officers, the engineering officer, Lieutenant Redmayne, as well as Gunner Horner, Twibble, and Blum. The senior surviving watch officer, Lieutenant McKissick, did not testify. Nor did Ensign John Woolston, the surviving damage control officer, or Dr. Lewis Haynes, the most senior surviving officer besides McVeigh. Fifteen enlisted survivors also testified. As the judge advocate examined members of his crew, McVeigh periodically asked questions of his own. The court then zeroed in on why the operations and shipping control staff at Lady did not report Indianapolis overdue. Witnesses included acting Philippine Sea Frontier Commander Commodore Norman Gillette. Under questioning, Gillette did not mention the Philippine Sea Frontier War Diary for July 1945 or its entry for July 28th concerning the merchant ship Walk Hunter, Wild Hunter, misspelled. The diary entry noted that the vessel reported a periscope sighting at 10 degrees, 25 minutes north, 131 degrees, 45 minutes east, and fired on it. Then, the Harris, DE-447, was ordered to the scene and obtained a sound contact evaluated as highly probable. She attacked and was joined in the operation by APD-36 and a plane of TU-7512. Contact was lost at 290600, and the search was later discontinued. In fact, Harris had evaluated the contact as a certain submarine. Given the ensuing storm of message traffic and the fact that Harris launched 15 separate attacks on her target, the war diary entry seemed strangely minimalist. Gillette signed it on August 13th, the day before the court of inquiry began. The court lasted until August 20th, and its officers delved deeply into the failure of Lieutenant Stuart Gibson and his superior, Lieutenant Commander Jules Sancho, to report Indianapolis overdue at Leyte. A string of officers from both Guam and Leyte filed into the hearing room, one by one, to be grilled on the subject. Gibson told the court that he knew by dusk on Tuesday, August 1st, that Indianapolis was overdue and that he did not report it. At this news, the court made him an interested party and read him his rights. Immediately, Gibson requested an attorney. Gibson's superior, Sancho, 
told the court he did not know Indianapolis had not arrived. Sancho's superior, Commodore Jacob Jacobson, said his officers had no duty to report Indianapolis at all, because she was scheduled to report to Admiral McCormick for training. Philippine Sea Frontier Operations Officer Captain Alfred Granham said his officers assumed that Indy had arrived, but did not check to be sure. Granham blamed this on 10CL45, the governing policy on reporting the arrival of combatant ships. The policy, issued in January 1945, stated that arrival reports shall not be made for combatant ships. 10CL45's implication, Granham argued, was that non-arrival reports should not be made either. 10CL45 was drafted by Commodore James Carter, the old friend with whom McVeigh had met before sailing, in the same building where the Court of Inquiry was taking place now. It had been Carter who told McVeigh that the Japs are on their last legs and there's nothing to worry about. Now Carter told the court that both McCormick and Leighty should have realized something was amiss and had a moral obligation to report it. What was not discussed was the string of intelligence and communication failures that led to something being amiss in the first place, failures of which Carter, Gillette, and Naquin, as well as Vice Admiral Murray, a member of the court, were well aware. 4. August 15, 1945 On Wednesday, August 15, headlines, bold, all caps, and glorious, unfurled in newspapers across the nation. New York Times, Japan Surrenders, End of War, Orlando Morning Sentinel, Peace, Japs Quit, Cincinnati Inquirer, War ends as Japan quits. Today, Thursday, are legal holidays. Western radio broadcasters also heralded the surrender news, and that is where, on August 15th, Kamikaze Commander Vice Admiral Matome Ugaki learned for the first time that Great Japan now suffered before the world in humiliating defeat. The emperor himself addressed the nation via radio at noon. Ugaki was the commander who had sent the kamikaze planes, including the one that crashed Indy, against the U.S. fleet at Okinawa. Now, due to a poor signal, he could not understand Hirohito's broadcast very well, but he could guess most of its sickening detail. As one of the officers His Majesty had entrusted with a nation-saving mission, Ugaki's heart filled with shame. Six months earlier, Ugaki had written in his journal that he would one day follow the example of the young kamikaze. Now, that time had come. He had not personally received a ceasefire order, so he told his men to prepare Suisei planes at Oita Airfield immediately. At four in the afternoon, his men were to meet him there to drink the farewell cup. Ugaki sat down and made a final entry in his journal. He hoped that, all the Japanese people will overcome all hardships expected to come in the future. Display the traditional spirit of this nation more than ever, 
do their best to rehabilitate this country and finally revenge this defeat in the future. I myself have made up my mind to serve this country even after death takes my body from this earth. With that, Ugaki ended his war diary and commended it to a friend for safekeeping, with instructions that it never fall into enemy hands. Then he headed for Oita Airfield by car and found there 11 Suisei dive bombers, engines already turning. On the tarmac, 22 aircrew stood ramrod straight, heads wrapped in white bands, each of their foreheads ablaze with a flat red disc, the emblem of the rising sun. Looking them over, Ugaki softened. He gave an order to reduce to five the number of planes that would accompany him. But Lieutenant Tatsuo Nakatsuru would have none of it. We can't stand by and see only five planes dispatched, Nakatsuru told the assembly. My unit is going to accompany him with full strength. Ugaki climbed up on a stand in front of the aircrew. Already, he had stripped his uniform of all insignia, including his rank. Will all of you go with me? he said. The flying men raised their hands skyward and cried as one. Yes, sir. Minutes later, the crews boarded their bombers. As his plane taxied, Ugaki waved farewell to his staff, who stood on the tarmac, eyes brimming with tears. Ugaki was headed for Okinawa, where so many of his countrymen had lost their lives. He would ram the arrogant American ships and display the real spirit of the Japanese warrior. Once airborne, the attack group arrowed south and disappeared. At 7.24 p.m., Ugaki transmitted his final message from the sky. The Emperor Banzai. Ugaki was not the only Japanese military officer to learn of the surrender via the press. That evening, Hashimoto was standing on the bridge of his submarine, scanning the horizon for targets on passage from Okinawa, when he was asked by his senior wireless rating officer to come down a minute. Noticing that the man looked ready to burst into tears, Hashimoto reluctantly followed him to the wardroom, where they had more privacy. Look what's come, the officer said. It was a communique announcing the end of hostilities. Hashimoto took a minute to reflect on the situation and concluded that it must be some kind of newspaper stunt or military démarche. He informed those present that until an official order arrived, they would remain vigilant and continue to fight. Returning to the special craft base two days later, Hashimoto spotted a motorboat from shore coming out to his sub and knew the moment had arrived. With his crew assembled on the upper deck, Hashimoto glanced at the now-empty chitin chocks and, with tears in his eyes, began reading aloud the imperial press communique announcing the end of the war. On the same day, reporter Malcolm Johnson was at Guam, about to board a ship for Japan, when he heard some outrageous news. While banner headlines about the end of the war were plastered on the front page of every newspaper in the States, papers ran another, smaller headline, some below the fold. Cruiser Indianapolis 
sunk. Johnson was livid. The Navy had not waited for his story about Indianapolis, nor that of any other reporter. Instead, it had released its own version, conveniently, Johnson thought, on the same day that President Truman announced the end of the war. Johnson and the other reporters complained bitterly to the brass at Guam, who even raised a little protest themselves. The correspondent stories, reported from the scene, were en route to Washington per the Navy's previous instructions, Guam officials pointed out to Washington. Couldn't the release have been held up until they arrived? Johnson regarded the reply as cryptic. It amounted to, sorry, but we can't possibly hold up the story. Why not, he wondered. They'd been holding it up for nearly two weeks. It was August 2nd when Lieutenant Gwynne first spotted the men in the water. Now it was August 15th. Why would the Navy sit on the sinking story for all that time, but now release its own version of events rather than wait for those written by reporters on the scene? On Sinkpack Hill in Guam, amidst the questioning about routing orders, overdue ships, and submarine risk, the Court of Inquiry also elicited narratives of the sinking itself, as well as the days and nights in the water. The twenty survivors who testified told of the horrors they had witnessed, as well as acts of heroism and cowardice, such as the hoarding of food and water. After seven days of testimony, Vice Admiral Lockwood brought the proceedings to a close. Days later, the court issued a document titled Finding of Facts. The first section, Narrative, related the departure of Indianapolis from Guam and the events of the sinking. Most of this was accurate. The failure of McCormick's radio men to properly decode the departure message, the explosions, McVeigh's appearance on the bridge, Flynn's assessment of the damage, and McVeigh's attempts to send a distress message via Radio One. It is believed, however, that no distress message ever left the ship due to damage to radio equipment and loss of power. The conditions endured by the men of Indianapolis were summarized in three bullet points. The commanding officer was washed overboard while standing on the ship's side about frame 110 and swam to an empty life raft. The survivors kept themselves afloat in life rafts, floater nets, and life jackets, and were assembled in four groups of various size, which, when finally discovered, were dispersed along a line about twenty miles long. Food and water and medical supplies were found in the rafts and in the water, but in many cases water was brackish and medical supplies wet with salt water. Following the narrative portion of the court's conclusion was a section called Facts. The listing was an adequate recitation of events. But in some respects, the court seemed to contradict both the facts and itself in the next section of its findings titled Opinions. For example, the facts stated that Testimony regarding visibility and whether or not the moon was shining is conflicting. Likewise, testimony is conflicting as to whether or not the sky was overcast. But the court's opinions stated that visibility on the night in question was good with intermittent moonlight. The court found that both Radio 1 and Radio 2 attempted to transmit distress signals, 
but could not due to equipment damage, but then concluded that McVeigh incurred serious blame for failure to send out a distress message. As though casting seeds across a fertile field, the court's opinion spread blame for the delay in reporting Indianapolis. To Rear Admiral McCormick's communications staff, who garbled the ship's departure message. To communications staff that attempted to test the radio teletype on July 30th, could not raise the ship, and simply gave up rather than trying to achieve communications by other means. To the failure of any naval activity at Lady Gulf to inquire as to Indy's non-arrival. To the ambiguity caused by Commodore Carter's weakly worded instruction on tracking combatant ships. To Jules Sancho, the port director at Tacloban, and his lieutenant, Stuart Gibson, who noticed Indianapolis missing and took no action. But then, the court concluded that the primary reason for the delay in reporting the ship missing was the failure or inability of the ship to transmit a distress message. This, in effect, blamed Indianapolis herself for the agony the delay would visit on the men in the water, despite the damage to the radio gear that the court itself acknowledged. But none of this was as strange as the court's logic surrounding McVeigh's decision to allow his OOD, McKissick, discretion about whether to steer a zigzag course. Number 35 in the opinion section stated that while the court had yet to establish it conclusively, its opinion was that Indianapolis had been torpedoed. This was coupled with the court's opinion that despite conflicting testimony, visibility was good with intermittent moonlight, and McVeigh's failure to zigzag was a contributory cause of the loss of the ship. This opinion, however, cannot be given full weight, the court wrote, because the enemy had radar, making an accurate attack relatively simple whether a ship is zigzagging or not. In the end, however, enemy radar, discretion to zigzag, and damaged radio equipment did not matter to Murray and the court. They recommended to Nimitz that McVeigh be brought to trial by general court-martial for culpable inefficiency in the performance of his duty and negligently endangering the lives of others. 5. Autumn, 1945. Washington, D.C. After Guam, Charles McVeigh returned to his home on Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C., and reunited with Louise. It was not the homecoming he'd hoped for. After serving on the Joint Intelligence Committee, commanding a flagship, and earning a silver star, he had been well-positioned for the climb to Commodore. Instead, he was fairly sure his career was over. McVeigh had known it the moment Indianapolis disappeared beneath the waves. During the long, sweltering days in the water, he spun out consequences in his mind, not knowing the specifics but imagining the broad outlines. Aboard Ringness, when he finally agreed with Captain Meyer to include not zigzagging in that initial naval message, he suspected he had sealed his own doom. Far worse than any career consequences, though, were the images of the men who died on his watch. He remembered them constantly, torpedo-blasted and flailing in the oily muck, 
the whites of their eyes glowing with a visceral strain of fear. He thought about the sacrifices of men like Captain Park. He'd heard the story of Park's heroism, swimming between the men in Haynes's group, encouraging them, keeping order, until he died fighting what he believed to be another threat. On September 8th, McVeigh submitted to Navy Secretary James Forrestal a recommendation that Park be awarded the Navy Cross for extraordinary heroism. But it was a travesty that this young man had died at all. When speaking with reporters at Peleliu on August 5th, McVeigh had been angry. Why hadn't search and rescue been launched within a day of his ship's failure to report to Leyte? That's my $64 question, and I intend to ask it, he told Malcolm Johnson and the other journalists. Then, at the Guam Court of Inquiry, McVeigh had himself declared an interested party and promptly made pointed examinations of several witnesses. But by September 16th, when he spoke with reporters again, this time in Washington, his defiant tone had vanished. He said he still wasn't sure what had happened to Indianapolis, but that the three disinterested men of the Court of Inquiry and the men in Washington, including Admiral Purnell, who have been sifting the facts, are in a better position to tell what happened than any of us who were on the ship. McVeigh's new contrition bordered on maudlin. I was in command of the ship, and I am responsible for its fate. I hope they make their decisions soon and do what they want to with me. In an interview Purnell gave the same day, the admiral seemed ready to oblige. He was the officer who, with Captain Deke Parsons, briefed McVeigh on the bomb mission the day before Indianapolis sailed from Mare Island. Now Purnell told reporters that it was a submarine that sank Indy in a typical night radar attack. The sub had been lying dead beneath the surface and sent home its torpedoes using radar. Purnell's assessment appeared in the New York Times on September 18th. The tone of his comments, a reporter wrote, suggested that though the magnitude of the Indianapolis loss was greater than in most instances, its characteristics were similar to numerous other losses. According to Purnell, the crew knew there was a submarine in the surrounding waters, and there was a hunter-killer group after it. The submarine moved to another area from which it was originally noticed, and that was that. The ship ran right over the top of the submarine. Where Naquin had lied at the Guam Court of Inquiry about the true nature of the submarine threat on Route Petty, and Gillette dodged discussing it, Purnell was telling the New York Times plainly that the sub chased by Harris and Green had escaped to sink Indianapolis. In another month, the Naval Inspector General would state that the precise cause of the sinking had still not been determined. But here was Purnell, an assistant chief of naval operations under Fleet Admiral Ernest King, already shaping public perception, casting unsubtle blame. To wit, the crew knew of the danger did nothing, and blundered right over the top of an enemy submarine. Timed in concert with the official death notifications that were about to stream out across the country, Purnell's words had the ring of an omen. Fleet Admiral Ernest King, meanwhile, was not happy. 
The Guam Court of Inquiry had failed, he believed. Too few witnesses called, too little evidence uncovered, too many questions unanswered. Why was Indianapolis proceeding unescorted, he wanted to know. Why was Route Petty chosen? Were there alternative routes? Why were no escorts available, and if available, why were they not provided? And what responsible officer made the decision either way? In fact, King found the entire court of inquiry inadequate in both scope and discovery. That notwithstanding, he felt there was plenty of blame to go around. The ship was not up to snuff with regard to interior discipline, organization, and administration, King believed. At Leyte, Lieutenant Stuart Gibson should have taken intelligent action when he noticed Indianapolis overdue. Instead, he did nothing. Commodore Carter's confidential letter, prohibiting arrival messages for combatant ships, was clearly faulty and a primary reason for the delay in reporting Indianapolis overdue. There were more contributors to the disaster, including Gibson's superior, Lieutenant Commander Jules Sancho, who was ultimately responsible for Gibson's actions on his watch, as well as Rear Admiral McCormick's communications staff with their garbled decoding of Indy's departure message. And yet, in his view, none of this excused Captain Charles McVeigh. This put King at direct odds with his Pacific Fleet commander, Chester Nimitz. After reviewing the results of the Guam Court of Inquiry, Nimitz said he viewed McVeigh's failure to zigzag as an error in judgment, but not one that scaled the heights of culpable negligence. King did not agree. At this point, the fleet admiral was looking at the loss of two warships, Underhill and Indianapolis, both torpedoed in the closing days of the war due to the same failure to put ultra-intel to tactical use, with a total loss of more than a thousand men. Even now, notices of the Indianapolis dead were appearing in newspaper after newspaper, the grim news echoing through hundreds of townships like the tolling of a bell. The Glendale Press newspaper in Los Angeles, California, reported the death of radioman second-class Paul Dollins. In Ohio, the shocking death of twins Albert and William Kogler was shared in the Cincinnati Enquirer. The Seymour Tribune announced the death of fire controlman third-class Thomas Leon Barksdale in Indiana. In Council Bluffs, Iowa, fireman second-class Roy Edward Roten. In Milford, Iowa, Marine Lieutenant Edward Stouffer. In Jasper, Tennessee, Fireman Alton Newell Phillips. Dothan, Alabama, Pampa, Texas. Salisbury, Maryland, Fitchburg, Massachusetts. Rochester, New York, Troy, Ohio. It seemed there was no corner of the nation untouched by the loss. Someone had to answer for it. On September 25th, Fired, fired off an acerbic five-page memo to Forrestal. It contained two recommendations. First, that Forrestal launch an investigation into the routing of Indianapolis and the garbled receipt of her departure message by Rear Admiral McCormick's McCormick task group. And second, that Captain Charles McVeigh be tried by General Court Martial. On September 29th, from his temporary office in Washington, McVeigh wrote to Lieutenant Commander John Emery and his wife, 
who lived in Mill Valley, California. The exact manner in which your son met his death is not known, McVeigh wrote, but it is believed that he went down with the ship. The surviving officers join me in the expression of wholehearted sympathy to you in this great loss which you have sustained. McVeigh was in the middle of writing 879 such letters, and each one weighed on his soul. He was grateful not to bear the burden alone. His yeoman, Vic Bucket, had been assigned to the Bureau and tasked with updating the records of Indy's crew. A total of 67 officers and 812 enlisted men had been reported as missing in action. Even now, though, there were families still holding out hope. Word had trickled back to McVeigh of wives clinging to the idea that their husbands were strong swimmers. Perhaps they'd been able to paddle to an island and were simply marooned. The time came for him to lay these hopes, and his men, to rest. On September 17th, he had walked into the Washington, D.C. offices of Admiral Louis Denfeld, Chief of Naval Personnel, and submitted a signed statement. All personnel not previously reported as survivors, the statement said, should be considered deceased. On the basis of this missive, more than 800 registered letters would make their way from Washington into the pouches of mail carriers to be delivered, unwanted, to homes in 47 states. Now Bucket was helping McVeigh manage the onslaught of mail pouring in from families of the dead. Some letters were vicious, blaming McVeigh for their loss. One family was particularly bitter. Anna Flynn, the widow of McVeigh's executive officer, Commander Joseph Flynn, sent letters to McVeigh that seemed penned in acid. Flynn had been on the verge of taking command when Indianapolis went down, would already be in command if he could have connected with his follow-on ship somewhere amid Indy's final port calls. The commander had two daughters, Carlene, six, and Anne, fourteen. Anne adored her father, idolized him, his Irish humor, his playful dessert-first policy. She was proud of his stature in the cloistered world of the Navy bases where she grew up. As he climbed the ranks, his privileges expanded. Anna and her girls had a driver and a nanny and household help, wholly provided for in officers' housing. All that was receding quickly into the past. The Navy told Anna she had six months to vacate officers' housing. She would receive a small one-time death benefit. She had no training, no vocation. Within a year, Commander Flynn's wife and daughters would slide from privileged to penniless. Anna blamed McVeigh. Other families of the dead wrote McVeigh simply to ask if someone could come and talk to them about their loved one's last moments. The captain asked Bucket if he would do that, and the yeoman agreed traveling to multiple states to visit with wives, children, siblings, and parents. When Bucket had not known a crew member, he went anyway and told the family all he could in an effort to relieve the black pit of grief, made paradoxically deeper when left empty of details. Dr. Haynes also invited grieving family members to his home, providing what comfort he could. For a certain family, only one thing would provide comfort to see McVeigh hang. Thomas Brophy was the father of Tom Brophy, Jr., 
the ensign who drowned at the cusp of rescue as he tried to swim to Adrian Marx's plane. When Brophy Sr. heard McVeigh was back in Washington, he sped down from his New York home, presented himself in McVeigh's temporary office, and demanded an interview. McVeigh said that he had an important engagement on his calendar and couldn't see Brophy. That was the extent of the conversation, from Brophy's point of view, at least. From McVeigh's, he had been dealing with angry and distraught family members for weeks. It was late in the day, he was exhausted, and Louise was waiting for him. 